I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law. I'm Stephen Murens. In episode 69 of this podcast, recorded about a year ago, Raj Sharma was our guest to discuss his case, Mohammed v. Canada, Citizenship and Immigration, 2022 FC1. There, in setting aside the refusal of an Immigration Appeal Division decision, Justice Ahmed stated, quote, as a healthcare aide, the applicant risked her own health and safety to support health comprised and aging individuals. She is applying the very skills she acquired in Canada over a decade ago at a time when they are desperately needed, while not knowing if she herself will be able to stay in Canada. To frame this commitment and these contributions as only a, quote, moderately positive, end quote, factor in the applicant's appeal is unintelligible. The moral debt owed to immigrants who worked on the front lines to help protect vulnerable people in Canada during the first waves of the COVID-19 pandemic cannot be overstated. I do not find that the Immigration Appeal Division gave this contribution the weight it deserved." End quote. Now, when the matter went back for a rehearing at the Immigration Appeal Division, the IAD member stated on this issue, quote, I also agree that society owes a moral debt to all frontline workers who put themselves at risk and persevered under very difficult work conditions during the pandemic. However, I do not fully agree that this moral debt and the insinuation that certain work deserves more consideration in the context of a residency obligation appeal is an appropriate consideration. Many, if not most Canadians work hard to contribute to the betterment of society. Through their hard work and efforts, we enjoy a high standard of living and a degree of freedom and security that is the envy of many throughout the world. It is only through all these individual contributions that we are able to achieve this. I find that it is difficult and subjective to state that some forms of work deserve more regard than others. 
In the context of the coronavirus pandemic, this may be easier to do. This was a once-in-a-lifetime scenario that led to unprecedented changes to society and the risk profile of many jobs. However, I found that this difficulty becomes more apparent if one were to use this logic outside of the context of the pandemic. As an example, it could easily be argued that we owe a moral debt to teachers who work directly with students. However, how does this compare to the moral debt owed to janitorial staff in schools who are paid less and often work late shifts in physically demanding roles? Through their efforts, our students have clean, safe, and functional spaces in which to learn. How would we assess the moral debt owed to oil and gas field workers who often work in remote areas away from family and in dangerous work environments? Without their efforts, the mechanical and transport systems that are necessary for our schools to operate would cease to function. If we were to determine that the moral debt or consideration given to different types of work should differ, there would need to be a framework to do so. Without this, this exercise quickly becomes subjective with inconsistent results. Therefore, while I agree with Appellant's counsel that we owe a moral debt to frontline workers who put themselves at risk during the pandemic, I do not necessarily find this different than the moral debt we owe to all Canadians who directly and indirectly contribute to the benefit of our society. The work of all of these individuals is a positive consideration when considering establishment." End quote. The Immigration Appeal Division then dismissed the appeal. Raj shot judicial review of the decision, arguing that the Immigration Appeal Division did not respect the federal court's binding judgment. And that brings us to today's episode, which is a discussion of Mohammed v. Canada Citizenship and Immigration 2023 FC 1044 is the neutral citation, or Mohammed number two. The episode provides, and the case provides, an interesting uh, and unique opportunity to discuss what is, how does redetermination work? and how do Federal Court of Canada decisions bind or not bind future visa officers or immigration tribunal members. Once again, if you enjoy today's episode, I hope you leave a review on iTunes and enjoy. I think that uh, generally speaking in litigation or as litigators, we always have uh, and given enough time in this field, you're going to have certain cases that sort of uh, um, stick with you or stick with, you know, or associated with you. And obviously we all know Lauren Waldman's sort of cases, Barb Jackman's case, of course, the seminal Singh decision, the, the Kanthasami decision, innumerable other cases as well. So um, I suppose Babna Muhammad will be one of those cases for me. And I'm, I'm quite happy uh, that that's one of my cases because uh, a lot of my other cases of note uh, involve uh, serious criminals or organized criminality or individuals that uh, are facing exclusion from the refugee convention refugee definition. So Babna Muhammad is uh, is a case that I'll put next to Abu Bakar, uh, another case of mine that dealt with Section 25 that was cited with approval in, in Kantasami, the Supreme Court decision uh, on that same issue. So uh, this is a sort of, a, it, it's a good case. It's a, it's a feel-good case. It concerns a, a very deserving individual. That's Bhavna Muhammad. 
So Miss Mohammed came to Canada many, many years ago as an international student, I think back in 2009 or so. She graduated, she even worked here. There was no ready pathway for permanent residence for her at that time. So she went back to her country of nationality, that is Fiji. She returned a couple of years later. Um, she had been sponsored by her first husband. She returns to Canada. Marriage didn't work out. And uh, she proceeds to build her life in Canada. And indeed, at one point, she was uh, spitting distance of applying or being eligible for Canadian citizenship. Life, of course, uh, is not always so straightforward. She falls in love with a, uh, a friend or a former boyfriend and, and who's in the U.S. as a green card holder. She goes down there. Uh, he's Muslim. He's uh, his parents sort of discover this uh, this relationship. They sort of insist that they get married. They do get married. She ends up unexpectedly, un unforeseen. She ends up getting married and applies for uh, residency in the U.S. And there was some issue as to the legal advice she got. Essentially, she should have done counselor processing and. And shouldn't have done it from within the U.S. And, and again, she stayed in the U.S. She stayed technically beyond her period of uh, her status. And so we could we could look at that in Canada and say that that's probably analogous to some sort of implied status. Lo and behold, some years pass. Ultimately, a decision is rendered, which is no, you're ineligible for processing. You have to leave the U.S. And so she does. She had left Canada for Fiji years ago, and then. Um, and then we have uh, her leaving the U.S. back to Canada. Now, the, by the time she came back to Canada, she was far short of the residency obligation, 730 days out of five years. That is the first stage of this, um, this story, which is we have a negative residency determination at the port of entry. That is appealed to the Immigration Appeal Division. That was before member Stephanie Pinto. That uh, by that point, COVID had happened. By that point, she's working in a long-term care facility. By that point, again, it was the early days of, of COVID. And uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, unfortunate deaths in the long-term facility. There was the vaccines were being rolled out. In any event, that was a significant element that we advanced in terms of the Rubik and Chu factors. Uh, we have someone with who's contributed during a very difficult time. Um, and ultimately, Stephanie Pinto refused relief. That was taken, that was the first federal court. So that was, we had uh, filed an application for leave in judicial review. We got leave. The matter was heard before Justice Emmett. There was some talk of this moral debt, uh, this moral obligation. Um, and Justice Emmett essentially took it, ran with it. And so we can see from his perspective that um, are we adding something to the Rubik and Chu factor? Are we, did the IAD not give due regard to a very significant issue before it, the moral obligation? The evidence before the IAD, of course, was that um, there was significant uh, damage or, 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 you know, racialized immigrant frontline healthcare workers were disproportionately affected by the pandemic. That was the evidence before the IAD. And uh, in passing, I think Justice Emmett always also talked about uh, another case, Bimani, who was a 
uh, someone with medical training who wanted to practice uh, or intended to practice uh, medicine and help marginalized groups. I think she had 50 days in Canada. And that person had gotten relief at the IED. So there was some passing comment on Bimani as well. It goes back. And uh, yeah, I, I was expecting, obviously, a different sort of... Uh, and I, I think in our last podcast or interview, I'd commented that perhaps, perhaps I'd taken things too lightly. I thought I had a good draw with Member Pinto. I thought I had, a, uh, we had Bimani, of course. And, and so did I do everything? You know, and you always question yourself after a loss in any event. So this time around, for sure, I was ready, covered everything. And I had, I thought, another good draw. I had Member Mark Ferrari appeared before many, many times before. So again, I was good. And this time I had an even more reasonable CBSA hearings officer, uh, Tony Osterling, who I've known for two decades, very reasonable individual. And as you could, you know, if you ever look at the transcript, didn't put up much of a fight really on, on this issue. And I, I made that comment later to member Ferrari, which is like, look, you can tell the strength or lack thereof of my friend's argument. He's a very, very experienced CBSA officer. And he's recognizing that we have a very strong application. Um, so in any event, I should have known I was probably in trouble again at the very start of this proceeding, because I'm saying to member Ferrari that Justice Ahmed's decision is binding upon him. And I'm looking at this transcript right now. This is an issue in terms of analysis. Let's say the ingredients are the same, but the calculation or analysis is fundamentally changed from because of Justice Ahmed's decision, which will be binding upon you in terms of her frontline work as a healthcare worker during the COVID pandemic. And the next couple minutes later, I should have realized here we've got uh, member Ferrari saying, I agree that questions are weighing and Mr. Sharma respectfully, I'm going to disagree that I have to follow the advice of Justice Ahmed on this one. That was the member or the CBSA? No, that was Ferrari. That's the member. member. So, so that at that point, that sort of, uh, you know, that uh, <laughs> this sort of at that moment, I knew that whatever I thought or whatever we had discussed, obviously, member Ferrari was on a totally different page. So that doesn't appear in the, the actual federal court decision, the verbatim of what uh, the member said. Can you read the that and, passage and, again. And, and I think Justice O'Reilly at this point had put, I think, his head into his hands because that's where I started from. I'm like, I should have known Justice O'Reilly. And this is when I should have known. And I took him straight to the transcript and I, and I said this out to him. And I said, sir, advice, advice, that word advice. I'm like, sir, advice is what you get from your father or your grandfather. And sometimes you can disregard advice, but an inferior administrative decision maker characterizing <laughs> a federal court on point jurisprudence on the exact same case to characterize that as advice is undermining stare decisis, undermining fundamental concepts of common law, like the rule of law, right? 
And so that word advice. And so, at, you know, at that point, Justice O'Reilly is like, well, sometimes, you know, Mr. Sharma, advice from your father or grandfather is more like a directed verdict. I'm like, I agree completely, sir. <laughs> but in any event, this is how member Ferrari starts. This is before testimony. Mr. Sharma, respectfully, I'm going to disagree that I have to follow the advice of Justice Ahmed on this one. That's the quote. And that was the start of my oral argument in front of Justice O'Reilly. You can imagine that that uh, might, you know, that found some, uh, you know, uh, ground there with a court to see that a inferior decision maker or administrative decision maker like the IED can be so cavalier uh, with on-point uh, jurisprudence from the federal court. Was the statement um, that the IED was just going to disagree with the federal court, was that delivered orally or did you only get that in written reasons? Uh, uh, well, <laughs> like, did you know it was coming sort of that the the member would just disagree with the federal court? I didn't think that that was possible. I mean, I believe that uh, member Ferrari is, uh, is legally trained or ha is a lawyer. So I, I didn't anticipate that we would have that issue. And, and what you can see in the decision is that, um, and it's a very convoluted process that member Ferrari does. And, and, I, and I said that to Justice O'Reilly, I said, this is, look at this tortured analysis. Um, and, and, and I think Justice O'Reilly takes it the same, um, same paragraph. So if you look at, you know, paragraph 33, appellant's counsel made persuasive arguments. Uh, paragraph 34, I agree with many aspects of appellant's counsel's submissions. And then here, paragraph 35, this is where things go off the rails here. I do not fully agree that this moral debt and the insinuation that certain work deserves more consideration is an appropriate consideration. This is where we get into this imaginary, this strange rabbit hole, which is many, if not most Canadians work hard to contribute to the betterment of society. It is only through all these individual contributions that we are able to achieve this. I find that it is difficult and subjective to state that some forms of work deserve more regard than others. Hmm. Um, and so then we talk about, I don't know, we, we start talking about janitorial staff and schools. We start talking about the moral debt owed to oil and gas field workers who work in remote <laughs> areas away from family. Whoa. And so what he does is that, and again, this no one asked him. There was no evidence as to the mortality or fatality or or the issues faced by oil and gas workers working far from home in the field. No one no one talked about janitorial staff and uh, and the higher rate of of COVID that they had. Um, and so he goes on this sort of frolic, like this sort of invented straw man, then proceeds to tear it down and then presents some kind of decision that he thought that would be immune to judicial review. So I'm not sure exactly what happened here. Hmm. Um, it, 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 I would To say that I was surprised would be an understatement reading this decision. Mm hmm. And it sounds like Justice O'Reilly was surprised also. His decision doesn't, like the, the federal court decision, doesn't 
completely reflect, in my opinion, that the IAD just, it doesn't reflect actually what the IAD wrote. Because mm-hmm. the, the federal court decision just says that the IAD's interpretation was not a reasonable application of Justice Ahmed's decision. Um, yeah, and, 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 and that's fine. And look, different justices have different perspectives. So you may have someone at a certain stage of their judicial career taking mm-hmm. the bull by the horns, shall we say. Yeah. You might have a justice at a different stage of his or her career um, doing what's necessary, what's appropriate. It, you know, he, he, didn't, uh, he didn't cover all of the areas that I would have loved for him to cover, but I put that to him. I'm like, whatever you'd like to do. Shall we talk about stereo decisis? Shall we talk about the rule of law? Shall we talk about the IED in essence disrespecting uh, the federal court on an on-point issue. So we can talk about that. We can talk about the moral debt further. We can talk about, you know, other issues that were raised in my memorandum of argument. He took the course of least resistance. I have no issues with that. I, I'm a big fan of Justice O'Reilly, and um, it's the first time I appeared before him in, in, in many, many years. I think he's an eminently fair-minded jurist. Um, I take no issue that he didn't go down my various arguments. I mean, you put your best argument forward, and it's essentially that Justice Emmett dealt with this in a conclusive fashion, mm. and we have the IED conclusively rejecting it and characterizing it as advice. Uh, the DOJ argument surprised me even further. The Department of Justice argument was that actually the judgment and the reasons and the decision are all separate things. And uh, Justice Emmett's comments on the moral obligation is obiter. Now, everyone sort of knows what obiter is. Obiter is like, okay, I'm going to make this sort of comment, and it's not really binding, and it's just blah, blah, blah. But we know what obiter is. I think Justice Zinn does obiter in some Hungarian uh, or Romanian, (laughs) you know, know, uh, state protection for Roma, for example. And obiter puts a line underneath it about the treatment of Roma in those countries and his own personal, let's say his personal comments there. But he felt it was important to put it in, but he wanted to make it clear that it wasn't part of the judgment and reasons. That's obiter. So the Department of Justice started with this, which was really interesting, cited a case from the Federal Court of Appeal and said it's binding. Luckily, I read that case. And the next paragraph, it said quite clearly that the, the reasons and the judgment are, are together. Hmm. Right. I'd be interested as to what their perspective is and what the ratio of that case was, if that was all just dicks. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. It was it was uh, Department of Justice Council's Mido Aluwalia. And, you know, we, we have a we have a good working relationship and, and I like Mido and and, you know, and I and I I put in everything about this case because I know it. And I told Justice O'Reilly, I'm like, if you have any questions, let me know, because this is my case from beginning to end. Sometimes as litigators, we come in, Mm -hmm. you know, we're second, third counsel, and you really, you can't blame counsel. Oh, so-and-so lost that case. Well, did they have it from the beginning? Did they, were they stuck with a particular factual matrix or profile? This case was mine from the beginning. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, it's my responsibility. I own it. Mistakes and all, warts and all, it's mine. So I'm running this case and I'm explaining the conditions at Bethany Care Center where she's wrapping up, you know, you know, 
very, very difficult circumstances. And I'm not sure what happened. Miss Alwale stands up and she says, well, you know, that's a very melodramatic of my friend. My friend is, uh, is being melodramatic here. And she's like, it's not as if there were, you know, dead bodies in the hallways. <laughs> and I'm like, I sit back. So I'm waiting for my reply. I start going through the transcript. <laughs> and I'm like, well, and when I stood up for my reply, I waited and I said, well, my friend, talked about whether that I'm being melodramatic that that may in fact be accurate I, I, it's not like because the first time. <laughs> quote Shakespeare in the course uh, I'm like you know what that's entirely possible I, I blame the Bollywood <laughs> movies that I grew up on in terms mm-hmm. of my you know melodrama but Fair. but if we want to talk about dead bodies let me take you to page 273 of the applicant's record the transcript where my client is testifying about wrapping up dead bodies in three layers of plastic because their families were observing this through some window or glass. Let's let's go through that transcript. I do all activities on daily living for the elderly. We dress them, bathe them, feed them, help them with lifts and transfers. We provide end-of-life care. I've cared for residents who have passed away, preparing the body for viewing for by family members. <laughs> this these individuals passed away from COVID. This is me. Yes. This information in is in exhibit A3. Has there ever been COVID outbreaks in Bethany Care? Multiple times. So again, almost a perfect setup. I mean, you mm-hmm. have your opponent say something my friend is being melodramatic it's not as if there's dead bodies in the hallways that she's dealing with and then you you go right into that record because again and again i don't know my friend's sort of perspective if i was doj counsel i would stay away from anything that takes the judge into the record Mm. right what you want to say is there's a reasonable decision he considered everything i mean you know, and and ultimately, judicial review is not a substantive appeal, and we can disagree with the result. But was how was the process right? That's what I would be doing. I would be doing this sort of twenty thousand, thirty thousand mm. sort of foot overview. Yeah. But she said there's no dead bodies. What that reveals is that she didn't read the transcript. Mm. Now, again, luckily I was there. Obviously, when I read a transcript, I'll remember that this came up. And but you know, it, it was a very interesting and surprising. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. process where I had the first CBSA officer who I didn't have a good working relationship and and again who suggested that Miss Muhammad 
worked in a LTC facility during a pandemic for a, a virus that we know very little about to bolster her appeal. And I'm like, well, that's kind of insane that someone would risk their life to bolster an IED appeal like a year down the line. That was that. I take no issue with member Pinto's decision itself. Again, I think her decision was intellectually honest at least. Subsequent to the Pinto decision, I had another LTC Nepalese woman on a misrep, not a residency shortfall, member Pinto applied Justice Emma's decision and said, this is binding upon me. So member Pinto obviously took the decision to heart and moved forward. The second decision, the Ferrari decision, I have a very reasonable CBSA officer, Tony Osterling, a wonderful gentleman. And, but I got a very strange decision. And, you know, it's kind of ironic that Mrs. Muhammad, you know, these decisions, these negative decisions, they're all, you know, the names of these decision makers. One is Pinto, one is Ferrari. It's like these car manufacturers or car companies. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I don't know what, what, what what's in store there but it was a very interesting proceeding uh it was obviously two federal court you know victories um and a third IED hearing coming up wow well I think it also has like lasting so when you're trying to find cases about how tribunals should interpret federal court decisions it's very hard to search that right like what do you search on canley or quick law how tribunal should interpret decision and this is one of the only pronouncements that i have seen where the judge kind of addresses how their how a judicial like the paragraphs in a judge's decision are binding on whether it's visa officers or tribunal members. And I do think, and it's part of why we wanted to talk about this case, like it's important that the decision be publicized and well-known because it is hard to find those cases, especially I, when something goes back for redetermination. You know, people often ask, what does it mean? If we win in court, will the future officer or tribunal or IAD respect the judge's decision? And you can say yes, because, you know, the principle of stare decisis, this is a case that actually explicitly addresses that issue. There was a case that I was going to use, and ultimately I decided not to use it. But it's a case that's fairly well known to the legal bar in Alberta. It concerns a master in chambers, a master fundak. He's a, he was sort of known for, you know, well-written, pithy sort of decisions. So this is a case... Master Funduk from 1979. And I'll, I'll read it out. It's, it's actually quite amusing. So essentially, the, one of the parties asked him to sort of depart from this sort of uh, Supreme Court of Alberta trial division, now the Court of Queen's Bench decision. I am bound by decisions of judges of this court unless they have been overruled by our Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court of Canada. Any legal system which has a judicial appeals process inherently creates a pecking order for the judiciary regarding where judicial decisions stand on the legal ladder. 
I am bound by decisions of Queen's Bench judges, by decisions of the Alberta Court of Appeal, and by decisions of the Supreme Court of Canada. Very simply, masters and chambers of a superior trial court occupy the bottom rung of the superior court's judicial ladder. Paragraph 53, I do not overrule decisions of a judge of this court. The judicial pecking order does not permit little peckers to overrule big peckers. It is the other way around. Hmm. That's interesting. I think member Ferrari somehow, somehow thought that the IAD is on par or has some sort of inherent jurisdiction Again, this would be a departure from everything that we know. We know that the IED does not have plenary jurisdiction. We know that the IED is a is an administrative tribunal, which is necessarily created by statute, and it is circumscribed by statute. Uh, fair enough, the federal court is also created by statute. In any event, the pecking order is very well defined. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I have to say that... Um... I have seen some somewhat surprising decisions uh, of a similar nature. Um, you know, we've discussed before on the podcast situations where there's a joint recommendation by uh, by counsel, and uh, you know, I recently, fairly recently, was in front of the federal court where member Ferrari decided not to take a joint recommendation by by the parties. And again, that was something that came up for discussion at the federal court. And it ended up on this like random wild goose chase around. <laughs> Stephen, I've covered this decision where it ended up being about defining a new um, set of rules for how to distinguish between when a stay is uh, appropriate remedy. And when, and anyways, Mr. Justice Annis went off in completely a different direction and in interpreting this decision. But ultimately, um, you know, one of the things that this case and this conversation makes me think, Raj, is that the the opportunity for even a very seasoned litigator to get caught flat-footed in the IAD hearing where you're like, you know, I remember talking to very senior practitioners afterwards and being like, okay, well, when we put forward a joint recommendation, you know, I didn't think that there needed to be further argument, really. I was like, okay. But well, again, you, you can see, you can see, you can see jurisdictional creep by the IED. I had uh, member Annette Ansom uh, suggest that as well. And I'm like, well, I would like to see you make a decision so that I can uh, deal with it post haste. Suggest uh, what? I had a very similar situation with that exact same member, yeah, and again, yeah, it got yeah, overturned at the yeah. federal court. But it so, was like, I think actually that was also a joint recommendation that was rejected, and so well, you, you, you have that decision concerning that on some before Justice uh, Zinn, I believe, in terms of bias. Uh, yeah. So yeah, right. remember one thing, just like litigation, litigation, it's almost cliche to uh, to compare litigation to uh, to war, to to boxing, to other contact sports. But in boxing, um, you always get sort of uh, knocked out by by what you don't see coming. Mm-hmm. So as as lawyers, we you know, I simply did not anticipate a departure from a uh, a role or acknowledgement of subservience from the IED with respect to the federal court, a federal court return decision. Now, 
we've all done this. The federal court returned to the RPD prior to RAD. The federal court returned to the IAD. The federal court returned. You always see some acknowledgement by that decision maker and then going down a, a, a sort of different route. I, I, you've never quite seen an IED board member directly challenge yeah, yeah, the federal court on. <laughs> and, and look, Ferrari, kind, again, how did he get lost in the weeds? I don't know. Was it because he truly felt that it was subjective? It's not subjective. Uh, I, there was no evidence regarding oil and gas workers. There's no evidence regarding janitorial staff mm-hmm. at, at schools. The only evidence before the IED was the disproportionate impact of COVID and the pandemic on racialized immigrant women on frontline healthcare. Mm-hmm. That, that's but I it. actually he do wonder. He, yeah, he, he, he opened it unnecessarily, I think. And that's where he may have gotten caught in his own sort of logical weeds yeah, yeah. of his own construction. Agreed. Well, but I think that the the argument made by Justice that this was all obiter, I, you know, that could have been, you know, like, again, I don't think that it's a viable argument. And clearly that didn't roll the day. But perhaps that was the driving force behind this advice, this position of advice. I don't know. I don't think so. I, I think that on a deep level, member Ferrari truly disagreed with it he said it it came out right in the within the first 10 minutes of this proceeding he didn't like it and he wanted to depart from it and he tried to square that circle and mm. uh, I don't think there was any strategy involved in that whatsoever he simply found that difficult to swallow you guys I have to raise this other thing just because this has been like one of those um those things that I've always return to throughout my career is the jurisprudence around the giving of care. And there is a long history of jurisprudence on this subject. And I find this is a very interesting addition to that. Oof, if we can call it that, you know, but going back to like decisions like um, um, where they're, they're talking, most of them are directed around the living caregiver program, but talking about a purposive approach to regarding people that have come into Canada to provide care at their own personal sacrifice. Like this is not something that you're just creating. There's actual jurisprudential background. And even though it's gone from some of these decisions were made under the foreign domestic movement program, some under the LCP, but it's sort of this idea that there is, it's not just about this moral. Well, well I mean, it, it starts from, you know, you, you look at Kantasami, you look at Chir, you know, the press, you know, the yeah. preceding, it, it's about, you know, what is compassion? It's, it's this yeah. uh, sort of fellow feeling. It's like, you know, this desire to relieve the suffering or misfortune of another in, in, in the sort of civilized community, shall we say. You look mm-hmm. at Justice Harrington quoting, Titus Andronicus, can you hear a good man groan and not relent and not compassion him? So, mm-hmm. well, so where does that come from? All right. Well, if, if you're, if you're contributing in a very, very unique circumstances, risking your own life for other members of the society, mm-hmm. that pretty clear cut. I mean, again, it's a, it's a relatively narrow issue. Again, there's no truck drivers that are risking their lives. There's no oil and gas workers risking their lives necessarily. I mean, so anyway, very interesting um, experience. I, I don't know on the third, uh, you know, uh, 
we have these two decisions now. Justice uh, O'Reilly didn't bite on on Bimani. You know, there's the Bimani case that Justice Emmett sort of noted in passing, and and obviously said it's not binding on me or the IAB, uh, which is correct. But uh, you have Bimani with far less indicia of the Rubik and Chu factors that got relief with 50 days, and uh, Miss Mohammed uh, has struck out twice now. Yeah. And so let's let's see third times the charm. Yeah. And I forgot there's no there's no certified question in this decision is there? It's so there's no there's no certified there's no question general... on something that's so fact driven. Um what you have I mean it's it's obvious, right? Like it's obvious that the IED has to have due regard for a federal court direction on this matter. It's it's mm-hmm. obvious that and again the you know this tortured analysis which is like again if everyone is special no one is yeah and and again like member ferrari says he gave sort of uh weight to this but obviously there's four paragraphs of his of his meandering tortured analysis that suggests that uh that you know that shows how he undermined it by by going down constructing these sort of various straw men of, I mean, of I... other occupations of which no evidence was led before him I've read, I went back and read Justice Ahmed's paragraph, like it's pretty clear at 43, the moral debt owed to immigrants who worked on the front lines to help protect vulnerable people in Canada during the first waves of the COVID-19 pandemic cannot be overstated. I do not find that the IAD gave this weight, the contribution, gave this contribution the weight it deserved. So mm-hmm. yeah, I don't they... see how it's opener. Like, I mean, it, it it's a clear statement that that the specific contributions of frontline workers needs to be given significant weight. It's also like several other federal court decisions have cited it for the same proposition. Mm. But Um, I mean, and to be clear, to be clear, it's not, sorry, Diana, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that you just say this and you're good to go. There was specific evidence Mm. before the IED as to the impact of similarly situated individuals as Bhavna Muhammad, combined with her own evidence and, and of course, her own history. So it's not a blanket statement. There was evidence there specific to her and and giving rise to direct evidence and inferential evidence. Mm. Go ahead. I was just going to say that it is still, I I fully um, appreciate everything you're saying, but when you look at it from a, like a strictly academic kind of a perspective, the idea that the federal court is commenting about the weight to be given certain types of evidence is a little unusual. No? It's not, it's not evident. It's not it's not evidence. Shall we say that it is a factor? So let's let's put it in a Ribic and Chew type of factor. There's evidence that goes to um, a factor for analysis. And what you have is the ID in the first instance, let's say, uh, diminishing, you know, disregard, not quite disregarding it, but not giving it the, the due that it was warranted. And then in the Second decision, you literally have an IED board member thumbing his nose mm. at the federal no, court and say, and say, watch this. Yeah. Watch, watch no. me. hundred percent. I agree yeah. with you. But it is just sort of, I mean, one of the thoughts that has been going through my head a whole bunch lately is that I, 
um, dealing with the federal court over and over. Um, I'm frustrated in a way that I've never been frustrated before by the limits of their jurisdiction. Um, and when you're getting into these types of conversations about what is the appropriate weight to be given and all of this sort of thing, um, to me, if this was, if they had or they were exercising some kind of power to actually direct verdicts. And I, you know, I know that this is something that I keep raising in every podcast, but, um, but the idea that we keep that their only real remedy is to send it back for redetermination by the, the, the original tribunal does kind of mean that there is, in my view, um, strictly legally speaking, a kind of muddling of that because I just I feel that they're uh I, I anyways I mean putting it really bluntly I just wish the powers of the of the court were more expansive well, that they could actually redetermine the issue rather than going through this exercise of sending it back I'm we, just tired of having to argue things three and four times look there's a lot of things that are written down like our constitution or charter or things of that nature ultimately it comes down to respect and that respect is this, that the court is going to respect the decisions of inferior administrative decision makers that have been tasked by the legislation to deal with issues or applications that the courts are not suited for. So that's deference. We're going to defer to them. Now, at the same time, those decision makers must show respect and mm. deference to the federal court. And so the system will work fine. As long as everyone knows what their role is in this judicial pecking order, this ladder that we have. And so if we had if we had a properly constructed or deferential or respectful IED decision of Ms. Muhammad, we would not have the the O'Reilly decision that mm -hmm. is basically saying, what, what yeah. is this? And so, you know, it would help if decision makers don't view themselves as some sort of like you know, that, and I felt this from member Ferrari is that he felt that Justice Emmett was encroaching on his uh, jurisdiction. And, and that's not, you know, that's probably where it kind of got off the rails. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't even yeah. like going, I'm going to uh, kind of speak to what you just said, but then going to Deanna's point after, like it doesn't, it, it yeah, he doesn't seem to like, uh, member Ferrari didn't seem to take it as it, what he did wasn't so much disagreeing with the reweighing approach that Justice Ahmed articulated, but rather disagreeing with the principle itself mm. about how the people who serve on the front line, um, that there's a certain debt owed to them that should be given particular weight. I do agree with Deanna that it, is it is it that common for uh, judges to pronounce on the weight to be given a topic? maybe not outside of the best interest of the child. There are like, I mean, in H&C decisions, there are cases where there may be one factor that a judge clings to as being so overwhelming that it wasn't given enough consideration, which even though Justice Ahmed used the term like contribution, the weight it deserved, that's sort of how I read it. Like the contributions yeah. of frontline workers is something so unique that there has to be attention paid to it, which it, it, is yeah, how it, it's it, been read in all these other decisions that I just yeah, pulled it, up. It, it's clear that Member Ferrari had issues with the reasoning. 
he had issues and he's like, no, this is unworkable. This is subjective and unworkable. And therefore, I'm not going to apply it or I'm going to give paid lip service to it. That That's the issue here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that because of the way that our conversation is evolving, it sounds like this is a thing about the specifics of member Ferraris exclusively. But I think I'm speaking to a more widespread issue in terms of going back to the visa office for another differently articulated refusal, maybe on totally novel grounds, maybe on the same one, you know, more craftily worded through through AI, you know, like yeah. it's all of that sort of thing. And I, I just, I feel that that is the frustration that I'm feeling because while I understand the pecking order and that it should all work the way that it should work, that right now, this is an access to justice issue. And I know I'm railing on this in every podcast, well, but these are being funded now. Well, well I mean, are in process. We, so, we, have, we have to distinguish judicial review of decisions made outside of Canada by by TRV holders with judicial review of refugees and permanent residents uh, inside of Canada with a pair. And again, remember, we give deference to the RPD, RAD, ID, IED, because presumably they have expertise. Well, we presumably. give deference to the visa office decision makers. To, well, that's a whole different issue and judicial review is really not suitable at you know mandamus on a study permit application or outstanding application show the prejudice come on come on i mean that is council going down that pathway using the hammer of the federal court for a trv not understanding the limitations of judicial review in that context is one thing if we're talking about here we're giving deference to the iad because they have expertise. Well, that expertise should obviously mean legal expertise and understanding of their role in in this common law, in this rule of law ecosystem that we have or legal system that we have. So that is one there. It was quite alarming by member Ferrari for his disregard and and frankly, let's say disrespect um, to a federal court analysis or or decision. And, and, And again, surprising that the Department of Justice backed it to the hilt. I think what you're getting at, Deanna, is like, I mean, and it's an issue that you face in litigation, which part of the issue with judicial review is so many of them settle that you don't get those judicial pronouncements like what Raj got here about the debt owed to frontline workers. When something settles, there isn't really any pronouncement as to how the next officer should rule it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, I'll, I'll agree with Diana. The more years I spend doing it, the more it is frustrating and it's very difficult to explain to, count, uh, to your clients and the variance in, in the process and then the unsatisfactory outcome, which is we're just mm-hmm. going to send it back for redetermination. Um, See if we can burn is, down your funds or your patients or your yeah. sanity through yeah, repeated it's, litigation. Yeah. It's yeah, like it's, it's not a thing. No. But that again is where, and I mean, I know Raj, you're short on time. Like the importance of this case is that it is a bit of a line in the sand case as to what's permissible on redetermination. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful now. Third time's the charm, and uh, and you know, I you know, thank you for having me on. I've now discussed yeah. this. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember the first time we were like, you know what, this case could be huge in setting this uh, precedent that there's a duty owed to frontline workers. Oh. And I looked up uh, as you were speaking all the times it's been cited, and except for one IAD case that we've discussed today, that is how it's been interpreted. 
Um, and now the second uh, judicial review of that IAD case now will stand for the proposition. Again, it's harder to search, but that um, the tribunal makers do have to respect what the federal court says. I can't believe that this won't just settle at the IAD. Like, honestly, that you're going to go through another hearing just seems to me like, whoa. Well, we we now have two sets of transcripts, so you know uh, we have two. So honestly, uh, what further evidence? So, is there to be heard uh, I'm, yeah, I'm wondering whether I should just do a stat deck for my. Uh, but again, like again, now I'm now I'm PTSD. Now you know, yeah, I you know, once it. bitten, twice shy. Now normally I would twice just be. <laughs> I, normally I'd put in the two transcripts and put in the two judgments and put in my two memos and I'd be like, you know what? Here's a stat deck as to her current circumstances. And uh, I think we're good to go. But I don't think I can leave any stone unturned on this case. And so I guess I'm going to run another half day hearing and call testimony from my client. Was there what any else? discussion uh, about costs, by the way, in the second hearing? Costs also, I've been... <laughs> that's another podcast, I think. So oh, I I've gotten costs where I didn't expect to get costs. And then I didn't get costs where I expected to get costs. So I really don't go down that sort of pathway. Um, you know, certainly I, you know, the IED decision, I, I didn't see any avenue for costs there. Um, yeah, but but costs is a whole different sort of thing. And yeah. it's something that I might look into for like, let's say a citizenship mandamus where there's been undue delay and there, you know that's impacted uh, a family being together or a delay in granting citizenship, for example. And, you know, I've done that. This one, I, I, I didn't quite see it. I was, I was very annoyed by, by the Ferrari decision, but I, I didn't see a basis for costs. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's definitely, it's a very interesting subject and not one that had when you think about conversation about cost at federal court three years ago versus conversations, there's a fruitful conversation to be had now about costs, where it was a dead issue three years ago to me. I mean, virtually. Um, and so not dead, but like, I mean, it had to be a very freaking unique set of facts. And now I feel like there's much more receptivity. What I would really love to see is some receptivity to the concept of um, more active intervention, more active direction to the tribunal. And again, you know, I've, I've put this to various justices and they're kind of like, what do you mean exactly? Well, <laughs> you know, but, um, I, I'm frustrated by, you know, sort of putting upon the applicant or the, you know, whether they're the applicant or the appellant, or if they're going back to another tribunal, uh, to another tribunal hearing, something like that. But just that they are the, they are having to continue going through the gears of this clumsy legal determination system uh, and, you know, getting this kind of decision. Yeah. Well, I know, uh, Raj, you're out of time. Hopefully mm -hmm. when we have you on next, it will be about a different case. Yeah. Or the third decision you can celebrate <laughs> with us. That's the big hope. Yeah. From your from your lips to God's ears, I yeah. I, I, I too hope I too hope for that outcome for this uh, very deserving client of mine. She's been Definitely. extraordinarily patient and 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 
and and resilient in her you know trying to navigate the labyrinth of immigration laws of the united states and of canada so i really really hope the best for her because she really really deserves uh deserves a, a fair hearing a fair shake mm-hmm. yeah. i hope she has a good sense of humor because i think she, that that would be quite important <laughs> she's, she's actually she's quite remarkable she's i'm sure she's you know she's she takes things quite well, although I, I can imagine the difficulty of this, but, you know, some clients don't understand the, the sort of, you know, why are we doing this or how, how is this possible? Oh, sure. and, and she's a very intelligent lady. And so she, yeah. she understands that uh, we've, we've, we've done our best on this one. And, and oddly enough, we are winning. It's just, it's two steps forward, Whoa. one step back. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god all right thank you so much diana wonderful to see you again steven great seeing you again two days in a row it's my lucky week yeah yeah take take care care. take care my friends bye how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 